You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. To my left, Evan Ratliff of the Atavist Magazine. What stories have you done recently? First of all, I like your energy yeah. right now. Max Linsky from Long Farm. <laughs> what have you been up to? Uh, man, I just sit next to you all day. I'm still sitting next to you. I don't look over your shoulder, so we can talk about that later. All right, moving on. No, I'm kidding. Tell me about what you published. The most recent Atavis story is actually doing some coverage of the Republican National Convention. Oh, I didn't know that. That's right. For reasons that are unclear to me, we were given a credential to the Republican National Convention. We sent a man, Justin, who was a finalist on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, twice. Hmm. Wow. Max, what's Longform been up to? I just want you to keep talking. You're at like nine on Zoo Crew level right now. Just go. <laughs> just go. Who's on the show this week? Uh, this week, Ellis Jones, who is the editor-in-chief of Vice Magazine. Not to be confused with all the other things Vice does, but the original, the free, and the legendary Vice Magazine. This interview was very interesting. She's worked at Vice for a long time. She became the editor-in-chief, I think, about a year ago, working on a sort of traditional magazine inside of a company that does lots of things that aren't a traditional magazine. So we got to talk about that. Aaron Lammer, I know you've been reading Vice magazine. I've been reading uh, like a large portion of my perception of what New York City was like until I lived here was from the do's and don'ts of Vice magazine. What is the over-under in this episode for number of Aaron as a teenager references? Uh, that's very high. <laughs> Whenever we have someone from Rolling Stone on, I immediately want to talk to them about this story in the 90s that was at Rolling Stone about fuck buddies, <laughs> about the rise of fuck buddies on college campuses and how much it influenced my life. Um, how about sponsors? MailChimp is sponsoring the show. They're the best way to send email. They're the best people. They have made this show possible. You've been into MailChimp since the late 90s, right? <laughs> I have. Yeah, I first used MailChimp in the mid-90s, and it just it changed my whole- MailChimp buddies, they called it. <laughs> Everyone on college just starting those email newsletters. You know how that goes. <laughs> now here's Aaron with Ellis Jones. Welcome, Ellis Jones. Thank you. You are the editor-in-chief of Vice Magazine. Yes. There was a point in time when you would not have had to say Vice Magazine. You would have just said Vice. Right. And people would have pictured a stack of magazines at their local skate shop. Mm -hmm. And I think to a young person, that's no longer probably what Vice first comes to mind. But you're still doing the magazine. The magazine mm -hmm. has been running for how many years now? 21. 21 years. Yeah. Okay. 
that's a long time for a freely distributed it is a really long skate time. shop magazine. Yes. <laughs> um, when did you first come across Vice magazine? I guess so. I grew up in Georgia, and in high school, I had a lot of like straight edge hardcore friends. Oh yeah. And so when I would go to Atlanta to hang out a lot with them, and I just remember a bunch of the guys having Vice in their house. And it helped that it was free because, you know, back then, like high school or like college kid, like you don't have any money. Yeah. So I just started getting into it and, you know, seeking it out at the local skate shop. Did you have like writerly ambitions at that point in your life? Not really. Honestly, I think I fell into this a bit. I went to college at Georgia State in Atlanta and I was probably there at least two years without picking a major. And it was one of those times where I was like meeting with my counselor and she was just like, you need to just pick something. Uh, and so I had a similar experience with a counselor, and at a certain point, he was like, "Look, I'm not your mentor. This is my job. You just have to do it. Like, I'm not going to talk to you anymore about yeah. it." <laughs> um, but that's really what it was. It was just kind of I just never knew what I wanted to do, and I always was fine at writing. You know, it was never something that I was super passionate about, but. When I was basically being forced into picking something, it just seemed like journalism made sense because there will never be a time where we're not having people covering the news and like talking about what's going on in the world. Yeah. So I decided to do that. Um, and then after I graduated, I had friends who knew Vice people. And then also the Black Lips, the band, they're from Atlanta and I knew them and they are on the label. So they also, I think, put in a good word for me. So. Yeah. You had a few good words going. I had a few, once. yeah. Yeah, and did you get a job out of there or like an internship? An or? internship, okay. but you know, it was this was what like two thousand and eight. So yeah. back then, I think no one really cared about internships in terms of rules. You know, yeah. I think it wasn't <laughs> until more recently that all the companies were like, "Oh shit!" Like we actually have to pay these people. Yeah, it used to just be like very unspoken that people just did whatever with right. interns in New York right. City, and there does seem to be like a slight evolution I think it's definitely, of that kind of thinking. I think it's improved. A lot. I mean, obviously, we pay interns now, but back then it didn't really matter. So, so how did you make it in New York with a internship? I basically worked the first year every day, nonstop. I worked at two different pizza places. Like, how long did it take you to make your first dollar from Vice? Um, I was probably interning for about a year, but at the same time, there was freelance work available, so I helped write ad campaign text for like a Palladium thing. So I got paid from that. So, yeah. but I think that's my fully getting hired was probably a year after I started interning. One of the associate editors left, and so they offered me her job. So Vice must have, like in 2008, must have been under 100 people? Oh, for sure. It was really, really small, which was, I think, beneficial for me coming in at that time because it was so small that, you know, the co-founder CEOs like Shane and Saroosh, they kind of were forced to know you or know yeah. at least who you were like or what department you were in because it was so small, you couldn't get away from it. That's almost something I feel like is more fucked up about like a giant company not paying an intern. It's like, I don't know. If you're going to like sit next to the CEO, there's a certain value to it. If you're like yeah. the 900th employee and you're not getting paid, that feels like a, a double insult almost. Yeah. But no, I think, you know, Vice was really the only place I wanted to work. Yeah. And I think coming into it, I was like, oh, I'll just move to New York and I'll intern and then I'll just get hired and that's it. Like that was like, as in terms of my future planning, it sort of ended there. And I think that was obviously very naive of me, but it all just worked out. Yeah. If you do start thinking those things through, you would never go anywhere or do anything yeah, exactly. like move to New York City. So as you became a more full-timey person mm-hmm. there, what kind of roles were available for you? I guess as an associate editor, it was, I mean, the team 
back then, like Jesse Pearson was editor in chief, Amy Kilner was the managing editor, and then Thomas Morton ran the website when it was called Viceland. Mm-hmm. So Thomas team, Morton, who is now who is still who, at Vice, yes, uh, who like has his own did, show now. Yeah, yes. he has his show on Viceland, the TV network, and uh, he has some. I'm going to give, give a rare uh, unsolicited plug that Thomas Morton's show on Viceland now is excellent. He's great. It's one of the best things Vice has ever done. Yeah, uh, in my opinion, he's really good. He's also from Georgia. Oh, really? Did not mm-hmm. know that. And he also started out as an intern as well. I mean, actually, a lot of people I know who still work at Vice or have spent, like, portions of their life at Vice mm-hmm. did start as interns. Do you feel like it's, like, a culture that sort of allows people to rise far yeah. from that? I think at Vice especially, there is a culture of wanting interns to succeed, wanting to bring them up and yeah. to have them actually work there. Because then, as an intern, you know, maybe you have to do some, like, the shit work that no one else wants to do. But you get to know people, and it's... A good experience, and I think that they assume that if you're interning there, like you must really want to be there. Right. So let me ask you: Now that you're the editor in chief, I can tell that you work very hard because um, I emailed you twice about times to do this, and you're <laughs> like, "I'm closing an issue that week." And and a lot of people who come on the show don't work that kind of like a truly <laughs> grinding schedule anymore. Like uh, putting out a monthly print product is a different kind of challenge than running a website. And it seems like it's a challenge that destroys about at least one week of your month. I mean, I've never worked on digital very closely. So I sort of think that we have it better because we aren't on that sort of quick, like turnaround of what's happening in the news today. Okay, let's get these posts up. Like, are we commenting on the story? What are we doing on here? Like, I think I can't imagine working on that kind of schedule. So I'm so used to this monthly grind of like, Two weeks on, super busy. Two weeks slower, where you're like preparing for the next busy weeks. Yeah, I mean, you could you could plan a vacation and be clear that there would not be like a major news cycle that you would be missing or anything. It's like true, that. but it's also hard because sometimes we're late. So you can plan a vacation that you think will be perfect, and yeah. then some shit goes wrong, and all of a sudden you're fucked. How late can you be and still get on the truck? Based mm. on your like, in terms of getting the issue done. Yeah, I mean, last we closed last Thursday, I guess, and. We were at the office till at least midnight, and yeah. then I was working at home for another hour. And even then, we weren't really done. I think most magazines, I don't see how, like everyone has in one night at least of the month where they're super late closing, and there's like nothing else you could do about it. You could try to plan it perfectly, but something's always going to go wrong. Something always takes way longer than you think it will. Is it hard to find people who have those kind of print production skills, like young people who want to like put out a print magazine today? I don't know. I don't necessarily think so. I think that, I mean, when we say young, I guess it depends on how young you're thinking. Yeah, so I mean, but I think, relative, you know, but... I guess I'm not sure how like young the youngest person on my team is. I would assume like mid 20s. Yeah. But I think that when it comes to like the magazine, I think people seem to respect it, at least internally and externally. I think people really like what we do, which is yeah. great. And I think that that sort of brings a certain kind of person who wants mm-hmm. that kind of job. I think definitely people, if they go from digital to print, they think it's like a vacation in a sense. But just say, I think <laughs> yeah. they're like, oh, whoa, yeah. this is a much slowed down version of like what I'm doing. It's a bit more genteel. Yeah. But it's also one of those things where you feel like you have time to really like perfect something. But mm-hmm. then at the same time, you have a lot of time to overthink things too. So yeah. it's kind of a double-edged sword. How do you define what Vice Magazine is in 2016? Like mm-hmm. I could have defined it in the 90s very specifically. Mm-hmm. I think mostly sort of by its like physical proximity. I'm like, it sits next to that Paris shoes yeah, kind of. Um, but today, I mean, the magazine has changed and evolved. Mm-hmm. So when you 
talk to someone who's not familiar about it? Mm -hmm. How do you describe what it is? So we say, like to say it's the best of what Vice as a company is. It's the root of the company. It's what started everything off. And even if you know, the company overall has just fucking blown up and we yeah. do have so much else going on yeah. that it might not be the focus anymore. But it's still, I think, you know, the like laid back long form book version of what the company is. Uh-huh. So at least that's how I like to think of it. So it really like the company ethos is sort of across all of the properties. And this is the like glossy yeah. high production like value, think, yeah, longer I, article version I of that. I think I would like to think of it as like a monthly coffee table book because yeah. it seems like our readers do tend to keep the issues versus yeah. any other kind of magazine where maybe you get it every month and you throw it away when you're done. Yeah. But it seems like people like to hold on to when like Google alerts about like Vice Magazine. I'll always see every few weeks I'll see something pop up like someone selling a huge collection of Vice Magazines on Craigslist or something. Yeah. <laughs> which is always funny but also a bit sad. When you take that basic directive – and you're commissioning, say, a feature. You've got a writer who you want to do something for you. How, how do you describe what kind of a feature works for today's Vice magazine? Mm, little long-form investigative pieces are what mm-hmm. we tend to focus on. I really want to do more essays just to, like, break it up a bit and make it a bit more fun. Because I feel like all of our features end up being pretty sad. It's always yeah. about something fucked up going on in the world, which, granted, it needs to be covered. But that's, like, when we started doing the redesign back earlier this year, that was one of our focuses was let's just try to talk about stuff that's fun and good and positive and not just all doom and gloom. But I guess our features, they have to have really good photos. That's, I think, really important to us. And I think what what people think of when think of the magazine, they think of the photography and the people that we've sort of brought up as time has gone. Um, Honestly, I think that a lot of people's conception of what a vice story is, is actually terrible. People will be like, oh, I have this really good story about this guy that like shit his pants and everyone laughed. Like, <laughs> yeah. because it's perfect for Vice. And it's always like, what the fuck are you talking about? What's it like? I mean, I know that Vice publishes a decent number of people who don't have a huge publishing history. Mm-hmm. There's definitely an emphasis on younger people, interns becoming writers, becoming right. editors. What are the challenges with working with people who are pretty early in their career like that? I think probably them not knowing enough about that things need to be fact-checked. Like we have, you know, we have like a stable of like freelance fact-checkers that we use for everything. They check everything in the magazine. But I think it really has taken some time with certain younger writers to make sure that they know, okay, when you go and interview these people, you need to give us the transcripts. We need the recordings. We need all of this stuff available. We need all your notes. We need everything so that we can give it to the fact-checker. I think that has been a bit of back and forth of... You can't just say these things happened with nothing to back it up. So, Which is not surprising because if you were a digital-only publication, you don't have to go much sort of below it on the ladder to right. be in a place where there's not fact-checking happening. Right. Do you keep like a Bible of like stuff to do when you're doing a Vice story or this is how fact-checking works? There's not really like a cut and dry like here's the email that you get when we assign you something. But there's definitely like you know the level of – the editors speaking directly to the writers, being like, if it's something we're sending them out to do, making sure they know this is all stuff we need from you. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a really good fact checker who sort of put together like a good seminar for all of our other fact checkers. So we all had them come in, sit down for an hour, go over like what we think our best practices are. This is how you check these things. This is the do's and don'ts of being a good fact checker. And then from that, we were able to sort of come up with like guidelines. So you, you've been up this ladder from the intern to editor chief. Like mm-hmm. what are the kind of questions that fall to the editor-in-chief. What does an editor-in-chief do as distinct from everyone else who works at a magazine? I would say probably does a lot of meetings. 
having those relationships with the other departments to make sure you're speaking to each other. Because I think a big thing at Vice is, you know, the company is really big now, but there's still like all of editorial sits together, not production and not Vice News because they're just so big they need their own space. But just trying to make sure it's like the word synergy. We use it a lot, synergy. Mm -hmm. And so not making the magazine at all like a catalog of like just Vice stories, but figuring out a good balance of stuff that we want to cover, but also going to our own teammates and being like, okay, well, Motherboard is the best at technology and like stories about the future. They're experts. So like, let's try to get them in there. So I think it's just like a balance. And you are allowed to cherry pick kind of from amongst the ideas created outside of the magazine within the company. Yeah. I mean, it's more like we talk to everybody. So we would never just be like, okay, we're never going to talk to that vertical. We're only going to these. But, you know, there's certain people who are maybe, maybe more talented at one like at this vertical might have a great writer and this one might not have such a good writer. We sort of formatted it a bit now. So all the verticals just have a column, either it's monthly or bi-monthly, hmm. which kind of helps keep that process just going. And just like we're constantly just getting content from them. How much space is left in the a magazine lot. that you can just do whatever you want with? A lot. I think that one of the things we redesigned, besides doing more culture, we like put in a lot more structure because I feel like last year, it was always like a weird mishmash of like, okay, well, I got this one random thing here about traveling. I got this one random news story. And I had this photo thing and just kind of, there wasn't enough structure in place of like, okay, what do we want the section to be? So when we redesigned it, we put that structure in place. So there's like a monthly profile every time and there's always a Q&A and the Q&A are always like a more newsy person. The profiles are more culture. So I think that there's not like a big pressure on us or anything to make sure we do all the Vice content, but we sort of figured out a good way to like, if we give them six or so pages in the back, let them do like 300 to 500 word columns, it kind of sort of saves so we can do the rest on our own. Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a quick word from our sponsor. Kind of an unusual sponsor this week, actually. I want to ask you, the listener, Have you ever benefited from a public library? I know that I have. Uh, I was part of a D&D group that met at the local branch when I was about 13. Had a great influence on my life. And uh, I didn't know until now that libraries are under attack. Um, They're being defunded, uh, shut down, and there is a nonprofit that helps support them. It's called Every Library. You can find them at action.everylibrary.org. I encourage you to go over, throw them a couple bucks. They're going to help keep libraries open and a valuable resource to communities all over the country. It's a very important issue. So again, action.everylibrary.org. Thanks, Every Library. So you had a feature, I guess, a couple months ago um, that was about Chinese men who have been made impotent by fraudulent penile surgeries. Um, The first thing I, I thought when I saw the story was you really must have like contacts pretty deep, like journalists who are working pretty deep in China because it's not a democracy protest. It's Mm -hmm. a very weird localized. It's almost like a specific con man conning a group of men Mm -hmm. into performing unnecessary penis surgeries. Mm -hmm. So where does a story like that start for you? That came through Wes Inzana, my deputy editor, his contact, Ryan McMorrow. Mm -hmm is in China and there's a lot of fact checking on that one, you know, and like just making sure with legal that we're cool. Yeah. Um, But I think it was just, you know, Wes and him going over their drafts and like figuring out what, what makes sense making sure we have the good photos. But 
That's a crazy story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I wonder with the story like that, like, you know, from a fact-checking perspective, mm-hmm. say, like, are you calling, like, this Chinese hospital where the stuff is being performed? Like, how do you even check something like that inside of China? I don't know if I can even begin to answer that because, <laughs> honestly, I think the idea of being a fact-checker seems like such a difficult job and totally thankless. Yeah. But yeah, for that, we would, if we have an office in China, like they weren't involved with the story because that would yeah. be hard for them to put something like that out. But going through them to seeing what their thoughts were, but also like we have someone in the company who helps put the company in touch with various translators. Yeah. So also making sure that, okay, the fact checker is talking to a translator to make sure like the quotes that we have are yeah. accurate. You, I believe you are the first woman who has been the editor-in-chief of uh, Vice Magazine. Is that correct? That's correct. I never know what question. I always want to be like, address that. I don't know what question exactly to ask, but it is a pretty male-dominated company. What has it been like at each stage of the game being in a minority as a woman um, Mm. working within the company? Honestly, fine. Like, I never had an experience where I felt that I was out of my element or Mm -hmm. I was being treated differently. I think people also think it's much more male-dominated than it is. I think that's also because our audience is more male. Mm. And I think that based on old, old content that we used to do, it definitely had a very male voice to it. But I do think there are, like, a lot of women at the company who hold, you know, important jobs. How much do you know about your audience? I mean... Is the audience for the magazine significantly different than the other audiences where Vice is reaching people? I have no idea, honestly. It's one of those things that I should really look into. It would be (laughs) great to do some sort of testing because I think based on older tests, it was like, oh, Vice magazine's audience is 75% male and 25% female. But I honestly don't know when those numbers were like taken. But it is a weird thing, like you were saying earlier, about how Vice magazine maybe 10 years ago or whatever was synonymous with just Vice as a whole. People who know Vice from back in the day, I think will still call it, oh yeah, Vice Magazine when they're talking about the company. Yeah. But it is weird to know that we have like a lot younger audience who maybe like our TV channel, maybe like the HBO stuff or maybe yeah. like Vice News or who knows. But it's very bizarre to realize that these people might not even know we have a magazine. Does that longer tradition make it easier or harder to do what you do? Because I know there's a different kind of a person, and maybe this is a mm-hmm. person closer to myself who's like, where did do's and don'ts yeah. go? Where, you know, like there's this long history that the magazine is answering to that, let's say, the Vice HBO show has mm-hmm. no obligation to honor. Right. Do you hear from those people, the old fans? I mean, not directly. That was a worry when we were restructuring the magazine if I got rid of do's and don'ts, what would people say? Yeah. I didn't really hear anything. I assume it did piss people off. But at the same time, with things like do's and don'ts, it's just we did it for so long and I think it had its time. And also there's it just feels dumb yeah. to be like a billion-dollar company that makes fun of strangers. It just yeah. felt really stupid. Well, let's talk about that. When you got hired... One of the ways that that story was spun in the media and media world was like, oh, is Vice getting nicer? They like right. picked a woman to run right. it, which and that, has its own connotations. Yeah. It. But uh, what you just said uh, is salient. It's strange for a multinational uh, corporate backed company to be like ripping on people on the Lower yeah. East Side. How do you get nicer? Like how, how, how does niceness come into the editorial process? Well, if people followed the magazine from like the beginning to where we are now, obviously it's different, but like how could it not be? Because, yeah. you know, you had someone like Gavin running it, then you had someone like Jesse, then you had Rocco, and then you have me. And, like everyone's going to have an idea or opinion about what makes a good 
magazine. Mm -hmm. And I think that the company, you know, obviously as the years have gone, I think also as the company's gotten older, our direction has just shifted. Yeah. And I, I also just think I'm just not like an edgy person. Like, I don't, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And I yeah. think I am a nice person. So yeah. I think it's just sort of reflects the qualities that I yeah. want to have or think that I have or that my team has. So I don't know. I think that the magazine would be terrible if I tried to make edgy content because I think people would just see right through it. It wouldn't be good. Yeah. Do you do stuff where you'll do like a multimedia presentation of a story where you'll send someone to report it and then it'll also become a video? Sometimes it's really hard. You would think that it should be easy to like have a feature that you want to put in the magazine that you tie a production crew to and then it just goes out and it's perfect. But it's difficult. We try to do that, but it's also, you know, with the timing and with how much the company is growing, it seems like it can be hard to sort of find the right moment for to make it all work. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it works out and it's great. And sometimes it's just like falls apart. But it's also one of those things where I think since I've only worked in the magazine, I sometimes just forget that you should do the extra stuff. I just think of it a lot as a print product. And it's something that get better at because there is obviously like the whole digital side of it is getting so much bigger. And like obviously magazines are failing and yeah. people don't care as much. But but you're in an interesting place to be in the age of the failing magazine. Yeah. Um, when I think of a magazine in general, I think this needs to sell on the newsstand. This like this cover has mm-hmm. got to compel people who are right. wasting time in an airport right. to buy this magazine. And when you see an article, you say this has to compel someone who's wasting time on Facebook to click on this article. Yeah. Vice magazine is a freely distributed print magazine is in this very weird pocket that doesn't have to serve either of those masters. Yeah, it's nice. What can you do with that freedom? I guess you can just do what you want. I mean, it's nice to know that the magazine is here to stay. You know, there's still obviously a pressure to make sure like we have ads in it and that it's like not losing a bunch of money. But at the same time, there's not that pressure of, okay, well, how much nudity is in this? Because we need to be careful about advertisers or like, or it's not about, well, how many celebrities are we going to put on the cover, which we never do, because it's not the thing in the company that makes the most money. You know, Mm -hmm. we have other things happening that definitely can like help. I don't know. I just think the magazine, we have like a weird little space where we just like do what we want and just like put it out each month with very little people above being like, well, what is it? Like, what's going on here? We just kind of get to do what we want. I mean, the the flip side of that, I would guess, is that there isn't as clear a metric of success and performance. Like, you can't say we sold a bunch of subscriptions or like we had a hit story. How is your success as an editor-in-chief evaluated? From a upper management perspective, I would say, I guess, that it's not so much monetary, especially since I don't have to really worry about that. Yeah. You know, I do worry about it and I do like make sure I'm trying to involve the sales and like giving them the information they need. But I think from like more just strictly editorial, the goals would be getting nominated for awards. So like last year we got nominated for an ASME award for best single topic issue, Mm. which is amazing. Yeah. Uh, We felt we were what was the single topic issue? The prison issue. The prison issue. And we were stoked because we've gotten nominated for a few things before, but having it be like the entire issue was great. And we were really proud about that. We also had a piece that got nominated for a GLAAD award. So I think for us and also for my boss would be, you know, getting that kind of recognition. Yeah. I think just also making sure we're working with the other departments to yeah. know what's going on with them and to try to like fit some things in if we can. You've basically worked there your whole adult life. Is that basically right? I left briefly for nine months Ah. and 
I was telling people when I left, I was like, oh, I left for nine months and I came back. And then someone finally pointed out, they're like, oh, did you have a baby? And I was like, oh, God, no. <laughs> it just, I just didn't realize, like, connect the two. Okay, so outside of nine months, mm-hmm. it's been your entire adult working career. And you've gotten yes. to see this pretty crazy rise um, mm-hmm. of vice. Was it more fun, like, when it was, like, 50 people in a warehouse? Or is it more fun with, like, TV shows and fireworks going on? I think it off? depends on the situation i think that back in the day when it was smaller it was nice that you knew everybody because you know it seemed that people would go out for drinks more often and maybe it's not different now but it's more like there's so many people at the company that you can't just do that you can't just be like all right let's all go next door yeah but also the company has more money now so you, there's much there's a lot more perks you know you get all the snacks and <laughs> you have like a espresso machine and like there's nicer parties and stuff but it's just different I like both parts of it you know yeah. back, our parties back then felt more sort of DIY, like, messy, and that was fun. But also yeah. now it's nice to go to a party that's, you know, has a bunch of, like, nice top-shelf liquor. So, <laughs> I think it really depends. But there's still something about the company that does still feel young and small. It seems probably hard to believe, but I think yeah. it just still has, like, a DIY, like, element to it or feeling of people just, like, working hard and getting shit done. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's strange when I think about the pace of change, you know, you said you started in 2008 mm-hmm. and on the Internet, that's an eternity. That's like the entire run of the iPhone, <laughs> you know, is that period for a print magazine. That's like uh, that's like one editor's reign. You know, yeah. it's not it's not that big a deal. Like, do you feel like a pressure to evolve the magazine more rapidly because it's like a sidecar on this like speeding Internet Big rig. Right. Maybe not. Maybe I should feel more of a pressure. I'm, yeah. It's just, I definitely have worries just in terms of knowing nothing about digital, in terms of like the CMS stuff. Like, I don't know how to do any of it. Mm. And when it comes down to like socials and all the jargon of, I don't know, uniques per month and all that stuff, I still get really confused. <laughs> so, not so much a pressure for, like career wise, but just more like an internal like oh fuck yeah. like if I ever decide to leave and not do the magazine anymore, magazines as a whole aren't doing as well. Yeah, what am I gonna do? But like, you do put. I mean, everything in the magazine does go online. Yeah, everything right? goes on Vice.com. Yeah, is your canonical version of these stories the print one, and you you just don't really think of them? I mean, do you like read comments online for these stories and stuff? No, like that? I don't like. We have some really mean. I was going to say, uh, if I have one product suggestion for Vice, it's removing these yeah. Facebook's co- comment we get, box. Yeah, we get all kinds of terrible people commenting, so I try to avoid looking at comments. Yeah. I think actually the YouTube is even worse. Like I'm Vice sure. videos on YouTube is like, it's a cesspool. I'm sure. Um, but you did just do this redesign. Mm-hmm. So there is some urge yeah. to, to make it No, new. of course. There is always the urge and feeling of wanting to make sure that you're still relevant yeah. um, especially within a company that's so digital and just growing like by leaps and bounds every yeah. year um, but like I said there's also that support system that's been there for so long the fact that the magazine started everything yeah. I think still like gives us some leeway in a sense like I don't think Shane would ever get rid of it because mm. it's his baby we have a good support system enough to where there's a pressure, of course, to making sure we're relevant, making sure we're covering good things and that we're competitive with other magazines. But at the same time, it's not like a make or break situation. Does that make sense? And for you, I mean, what do you want to achieve from here? Is there some vision of the magazine that you see yourself getting to or is it just kind of mm. recreated every issue? Not necessarily. I mean, 
I think it's more in terms of what people think of when they think of the magazine. I think when people still refer to it as like a lads mag and like just talks about like girls tits or whatever, like I hate that. And it obviously doesn't do that. Like I had someone ask me a question one time, like a reporter, and he was like, oh, you know, what's happening with the redesign? You know, because I noticed in December there were some boobs. So is there a certain number of boobs you have to have per issue? And I was like, what? No. Like if you even looked at the magazine, sure, there was one or two, but it was also art. It's not like just gratuitous like shit. But I think just hoping that everyone likes it. Yeah. Everyone wants that. But more like hoping that. You know, like women read the magazine, yeah. that they, they enjoy it and that they think that their voices are heard or that the stories that are important to them are being covered. I hope and assume that people of color want to read it, people who are like in their 20s, people who are in their 40s. Like I just, I would just hope that it's a magazine that everyone could find enjoyable, that someone could learn something from or get something out of it. Mm-hmm. So. All right. Well, thank you very much, Ellis sure. Jones. Where can people generally find a Vice magazine in their town? I have no idea. Okay. Um, but you can subscribe to it. Probably like whatever block, like go to your local head shop and kind of like <laughs> scan that entire block. If it's a college town, like look for like pizza parlors, that yeah. kind of thing. You could probably Skate find it. Skate shops, there. American Apparel. Yeah. And if all of that strikes out, uh, check it out online. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thanks to Ellis Jones for coming in, to my co-host, Max and Evan, to our editor, Mickey Capper, to our intern, Courtney Harrell. Of course, our sponsors, MailChimp and Every Library. Head over to action.everylibrary.org, give them a couple bucks, and they will help out libraries all over this country. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.